welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Amber Sparks and Emily Hazelwood with Blue Latitudes. Firstly, I want to thank and give a shout out to Stephen Forrester who helped line this up and actually make the introductions. How in the world do you guys know a kid from Houston, Texas working here versus, and then obviously you guys are in San Diego. How do you guys know Steven? Well, it turns out the oil and gas world and the ocean world are very, very small. We run into a lot of the same people a lot of times, but we actually connected with Steven. We had shared, we were featured in the BBC earlier this year, and he saw the article and reached out to us and asked if we'd be interested in participating in his podcast. And we agreed and it kind of organically grew out of that. Okay. Well, he speaks very highly of you. So I was extremely excited when he told me, I actually had him on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he always has such interesting stories with people that he's met along the way. And I figured, yeah, we need to have you ladies on and talk about your story. And, you know, I certainly want to hear about each of you, but first wanted to congratulate you guys on being listed in Forbes 30 under 30, along with best entrepreneurial companies, I think back in 2018. What a huge accomplishment for you and your company. How rewarding is that to have those types of accomplishments at such a young age? Yeah. Well, thank you. And hopefully that's not our peak, you know? Like, right. Yeah. We no, hopefully you're not on the other side of the mountain. And yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, that's exciting. So how did you, I mean, ex- talk a little bit about the story behind that. I mean, did they just randomly come to you or did you just grow extremely fast? I mean, how did you guys get put on the radar like that? It's kind of, you know, a combination of many, many things. You know, when you're starting a business, a lot of it is word of mouth, but a lot of it is putting yourself out there and applying for these things. Forbes list you apply for, it's a lengthy application process. I think there's three rounds of eliminations, you have to put references, all sorts of things. But, you know, you're at the same time, you have to like be building your application and building the materials that will go on to that. But you got to do it for yourself. You got to reach out and yourself out there and apply for these types of things. And I think for Amber and I, it was, you know, we've been recognized before in the science community and the work that we've been doing in the marine sciences and on, on these offshore oil platforms, but being recognized as women in business was very important and big for us because especially in the oil and gas world, we're younger than most of the people in that space. And so, so I think sometimes people look at us and they say, well, they couldn't have the experience. They don't know what they're talking about because they're too young. And so I think getting that recognition really helped us to validate some of the work that we've been doing. And you know, neither one of us has a business degree. So it's been, you know, an education in Google and figuring it out as you go and, you know, relying on your resources and your network. So being recognized in that way was really big for us. That's huge. You're getting the real life MBA is what they say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
No, and, and, and as, our, as you go along, you realize like everybody's just kind of figuring it out. I know there's <laughs> no the blueprint answer. for it, right? It's yeah. it's like <laughs> I swear if it wasn't for Google, I don't think you know we would evolve at, at such a pace as we do because I'm in graduate school right now and I find you know textbooks and all the material that we're given are great, but investopedia.com and like other sources <laughs> like that are amazing. And so while Google and YouTube have like really helped me with my grades, you know, I always bug one of my professors of like, yeah, you, the way you taught it didn't make sense. So thanks to Google, I'm actually getting my money's worth now. So yes. the internet and technology has changed the game for many. And so no, that's really cool. I do want to pivot real quick. And I do want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, which is Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by re dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well-pad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. So before we keep going about Blue Latitudes, I'm really curious, how are you ladies from a business perspective innovating this year? Whether that's marketing, whether that's entering new, you know, entering new waters, you know, what, what does that look like, especially coming out of COVID? Can you talk a little bit about how you're, how you're trying to innovate this year? Yeah, definitely. So this year we've, because of COVID, sort of capitalized on the opportunity to go back and sharpen some of our, our tools and learn some new things. So we've been using a geographical information system, GIS, which is a software tool that helps you to visualize data on maps. And we deal with a lot of really complex information and data that sometimes we write up into a long lengthy report, but nothing communicates better than a really, you know, informative image or graphic or something like that. So using GIS and fine-tuning our skills within that particular software has been a really great use of our time over COVID to kind of learn more about that and then refine it so that we have these great, you know, this great new skill to supplement the work that we're doing. No kidding. That's really good. So what did you do historically then to come up with that? Or was it just not a tool that was in the toolbox? You know, it wasn't really in our toolbox at the time. So we were making figures using other resources. And this was a really great way to kind of take our take us to the next level. And during this time, we've also realized that, you know, we focus so much on repurposing offshore oil and gas platforms into artificial reefs. But there are there's a lot of new developments happening around the U.S., for other renewable energy sources like offshore wind or aquaculture, things like that. So we've also kind of pivoted our services to target those renewable energy industries. And so I know off of Oregon and off the East Coast, these offshore wind developments are coming. And the structures, while I, albeit the energy they produce is much cleaner than oil and gas, the structure is very similar. Uh, beams yeah. and cross beams that go beneath the water surface to support that infrastructure. So we're, we've been looking at that and trying to understand how the placement and development of offshore wind is going to impact the environment. So that's also been kind of a new thing we've we've done during these COVID years. Excellent. No, and, and what a better time to diversify. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of initiatives and a lot of capital being poured into the renewable space. So, I mean, the more, whether it's offshore rigs, whatever, 
you know, offshore wind, offshore solar, I mean, whatever that looks like, certainly it appears that your market and the piece of the pie is only growing, which is super cool. And, and I certainly want to touch on, on, on that afterwards, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious about you ladies from a personal perspective. So either one of you can start off. I mean, you're in California right now. Amber, let's start with you. Where are you originally from? California is my home base. So I grew up in Southern California. I've always been very passionate about the ocean, very curious about it, and kind of followed that into my academic pursuits at UC Berkeley. I studied marine science. And after I graduated, I wanted to communicate these really like complex ideas in ocean science to a variety of audiences. So I started working for Google in this program called Google Ocean. We were in partnership with the Sylvia Earle Alliance. And what we were doing is we were creating educational stories in Google Earth and Google Maps that could be shared with the general public. So one way we did that was like through Google Maps using underwater street view. So, you know, you can go into street view and see your house or your neighborhood, things like that. Well, there are places you can virtually dive on a coral reef and all these educational pop-ups will will come for you. And, you know, it's and it's an immersive 3D experience, really great for engaging people who maybe never have the opportunity to go to the ocean or ever, you know, go beneath the surface even. So I was really excited and passionate about that. And when I went down to Scripps Institution of Oceanography for my master's degree, that's where I met Emily. And she told me about her experience in the Gulf, which she'll tell you a little bit about where she was looking and working on these platforms offshore. And I said, you know, we have platforms in California. Could these be the same type of reef ecosystems? And if so, what's the value there? How could they be repurposed? And it just sounded like the craziest communication problem I've ever heard. How could I tell my grandmother that an offshore oil and gas platform has ecological value? It's a habitat. Fish love it. That just seemed kind of next level, like really great challenge. So we dove in on that question together for our master's thesis, but I'll let Emily share her background too. Okay. Interesting. So Emily, what about you? Where did you grow up? So I'm actually originally from New Hampshire. So basically it's diagonally far away from San Diego as you can be. Yeah. And I got my undergrad in environmental science and I was connected by one of my professors actually to the BP oil spill and got my first job out of undergrad working on the spill as a field tech. And so we were doing water sampling and biota sampling, sediment sampling, all of which was to further understand the entire impact of the spill. And it was during that time on the East Coast, we don't even have wind farms. Well, now we do. But at the time, we didn't. We didn't have oil platforms. I'd never seen an oil platform. I'd also never seen, and it was the largest man-made disaster of all time. I've never seen anything like that before. But what was unique is that the fishermen, you know, a lot of them were hired by BP at that time because they couldn't fish commercially to drive our boats as sampling boats. And they would just, every weekend, they'd be talking about, cannot wait to get out and go fishing on these platforms which at the time seemed so bizarre because, you know, my first, I'm down here and I'm thinking, what? Like, we're like trying to understand the impact caused by one of these platforms and like all these oil, like marine life that are out here. How could these possibly also be good areas for fishing? And sure enough, that's when I first learned about the Riggs Therese program. It's when I learned like what an important part of the culture these platforms play, not just from an economics standpoint, but from a commercial and a lifestyle standpoint for culture down in the South. You know, we worked from in Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, 
And everywhere I went, it was the same story. That's what first got me interested in this program and understanding how these platforms integrate with our day-to-day lives and how they have this intrinsically unique relationship with the marine environment. So when I went to graduate school and I met Amber and I learned California also has a reef series program, but unlike the Gulf of Mexico, which is reefed well over 500 platforms, California has reefed exactly zero of our 27 platforms. And we recognize this unique problem. And, you know, if you blow it out even farther from California, Gulf of Mexico, there's oil platforms in every single ocean on the planet. And at some point they're all going to come out and you're going to be faced with these same unique issues. And that's really where, you know, the idea for our company was born. Wow. That is such a cool story. And actually it's interesting because I grew up, I think I was telling you close to Vancouver in the Okanagan. So I didn't spend too much time on the ocean except for when, you know, we'd go to Mexico for vacations and stuff like that. And then going to Vancouver a little bit. But my first experience with fishing offshore was several years back now when I went to Key West and the guide took us to like several platforms, basically between Florida and Cuba. And that's where all the good fishing was. And like all these like random abandoned structures. And it was interesting. I was like, wow, you know, it kind of dawned on me at that point too. Cause the one, one of them we went to, there was schools and schools of fish swimming around this this old, I don't know what kind of platform it was, but it was some sort of like oil and gas platform. And it was interesting. And so it, it kind of supplements what you're saying is like, it, it provides an interesting ecosystem. And, and again, I'm, I'm curious, and we don't have to get too much in the weeds with it, but so actually let's back up a little bit. So you guys developed and created Blue Latitude. So high level, what does Blue Latitudes do? And then we can kind of dive in maybe a little bit about the science or just sort of the technical stuff on, on like why, you know, fish and, and the rest of the ocean is, is so attracted to these structures. Sure. Yeah. So Blue Latitudes is a marine environmental consulting firm okay. and work primarily on repurposing the offshore oil and gas platforms into artificial reefs. And as I mentioned, we're really pivoting and kind of expanding in the past year and year and a half here to focus not just on offshore oil and gas, but all offshore energy and where it overlaps or intersects with the environment and looking for, you know, silver linings. It's not all about extracting or taking resources from the ocean, but where are opportunities where we can work with the environment and have a more conservation focused mindset. And a lot of the work that we do around in the offshore energy and offshore oil and gas energy industry is focused around decommissioning. So we look a lot at end of life and how to remove these structures or reuse them in a way that has minimal impact to the environment. That makes sense. So are you guys working with companies when they develop, say, life cycle analyses for the end of life portion of that? Or because I mean, so I've done a few LCAs and not for anything offshore related, but decommissioning is a huge part of a life cycle analysis and figuring out the energy inputs and the costs associated. And I mean, I'm sure there's quite a big difference between either just leaving it or the costs and energy associated with, you know, taking it out and recycling it or whatever that looks like. So are, do you guys get involved with that type of stuff or... We do. I mean, sometimes companies come to us and they're decommissioning that year. They've already made the decision and they want a reef and it's happening right now. Other times companies are coming to us and they're looking at decommissioning planning 10 years down the road. And it's hard because a lot of people I think don't realize, and I didn't realize 
became really ingrained in this space is oil and gas is so impacted by politics and energy changes in policy that a decision that's made in the fall could be vastly different than one made in the spring. So they might say, you know what, we're decommissioning it. We're ta- we've worked on several structures where they're like, we're decommissioning it. We're taking it offline. A year later, they're like, actually, we're going to keep it online a little longer and see if we can get more production out of the, stru- out of the structure and the wells. And so it's, it's an interesting space to be in. But I also think these companies that are thinking long-term, that are looking at 10 years, five years down the road, it's smart because you want to make sure that your options are available to you. And then at the end of the day, it's going to be a cost-benefit analysis. Will they make more money by reefing it or will they make more money by taking it on shore and scrapping it? Are they wanting to play it safe from a political perspective, You know, not wanting to offend different stakeholders? It kind of changes on each structure, but it's certainly a part of the life cycle planning that we're involved in. Right. So interesting you mentioned the cost-benefit analysis on either decommissioning and bringing it out, recycling it, or just leaving it. Are there costs associated with, I mean aside from having to say shut in a well or, you know, like once assuming the well's shut in and they're at a point where, okay, we've got this structure, are there costs associated with just leaving it then at that point or? Yeah. So there are costs associated with repurposing the structure. So usually they Ah, have to, when you reap the structure, there traditionally are three options, three methods you can use. One could be to topple the structure directly on its side or tow it to an area of ecosystem need. So like in Louisiana, there's all these designated artificial reef sites. So you tow it to oh. a site like that. Or the third option, you would cut off the upper 85 feet so that ships can safely draft over. And so the both the top sides and that 80 feet would need to be dismantled and taken on shore for recycling. Interesting. I never thought of that. It makes sense. If you've got a structure, you can't just leave it. Now, and you probably would be able to speak a little bit more on this, but there are structures that are basically just abandoned as they stand. Are there not? Or or I guess it, may, it does depend on the state or the whether it's federal waters or not? Or what, can you touch on that a bit? There's a law. It's called the Idle, idle Iron Policy. And okay. so you can't leave a platform abandoned offshore for, I think it's like a two-year two or three-year period. Which makes sense. I understand that because especially for everything that you see above the surface, that requires a significant amount of maintenance to keep it going. You know, below the surface, it's a little bit of a different story, but above the surface, you get the impacts from wind and waves and storms and, you know, corrosion over time. Underneath the water, it's a little bit more stable. It's coated with marine life, which helps to slow down that corrosion. So you won't you won't ever find a platform just total if it's standing with above the water structure surface. You won't ever find one that's just totally abandoned as it is. Plus, you know the top sides. A lot of these older platforms, we've got platforms going back to the 80s, 70s, 60s. They've got hazardous materials in them. You know, the stuff below the surface, it's just galvanized steel for the most part. But when you get above the surface, you've got living quarters and storage facilities, and it's a whole different ballgame. Wow. That's crazy. So talk a little bit about when a structure is put in place and sort of ready for its, you know, next life, if you will. What is attractive for fish and marine life? Like talk a little bit about sort of the, the, the relationship there. Because, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Yeah. So marine life is attracted to structures in the ocean. And that could be a natural rocky reef outcrop or a coral coral head. Marine life is always going to be attracted to that. So in the same way, 
they're attracted to the platform jacket that the beams and cross beams that create nooks and crannies, places for them to settle, and in some cases, make their permanent home. And so you kind of see two groups of species that come in. You have the migratory species that are just passing by, and they come and stop at the structure to feed usually or take shelter and then move on. And then you have other species that are more permanent residents that spawn, breed, grow to maturity on the structure itself. And of course, invertebrates that coat all the all the beams and cross beams. So in the Gulf of Mexico, you're going to see corals and sponges. In California, we see scallops, mussels, anemones, cold water corals that encrust all the structure. So they're not necessarily attracted to like the metal or the iron. They're attracted to just a structure to be able to call it home, basically. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because there are a lot of artificial reef programs around the United States that are looking to create opportunities for marine life to settle. So they'll use materials like toilets or tires or off the coast of New York, they're sinking old subway cars, any material that they can get in the water to have, you know, hard structure and hard substrate that will attract marine life because they're hoping to, you know, either increase their fisheries production or maybe mitigate for near shore impacts from erosion or sediment, sedimentation, things like that, that can happen near shore that degrade our natural ecosystems. Mm. And so they're looking to create these artificial habitats. But the beauty of the Riggs to Reef program is that we're not putting anything additional into the waters, into the water. These structures have been standing some for 30, 40 years and have marine life that's already encrusted and grown on them. They're already artificial reefs. So we're not necessarily making a new reef. We're just sort of capitalizing on the opportunity that's already existing and preserving that that habitat through the decommissioning process. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you guys ever like dive or, or do any of that? Or is it more just the business side of things? Or do you actually adventure out and go look at these these platforms? Well, for the for-profit, for the business, we typically work with remotely operated vehicles, mostly because, you know, you get a video log, so there's less error in terms of diver counts. Also, our the ROVs that we use, they, I mean, we've taken them down to study sites that were at 7,000 feet. The diver could never go that deep. Wow. As a recreational diver, though, Amber and I, we also have a nonprofit, the Blue Latitudes Foundation, where we do education, outreach, and research, and we do a lot of work on these platforms, getting people acquainted with them. And in that perspective, we do go diving on the platforms. So we've been diving on them in the Gulf of Mexico and in California and every single time. I mean, it's an unbelievable dive. If you're you're a diver or, you know, just to experience that kind of dive and both Amber and I, we've gone diving all around the world. It's unlike any other dive you've ever done in your life. What? That is so cool. So I have to ask, have you ever found a treasure? (laughs) No, never found treasure. Dang have you, have you ever come across anything with that's like, say, toppled over anything interesting or like a souvenir that you've kept? That's like, we found this at the bottom of this structure um, or something. Well, Amber and I, we did do a really cool dive in California during our graduate studies where we went up to dive a platform in Santa Barbara. And what's unique about California's platform, they're covered in scallops and mussels and things like that. And when those scallops and mussels die, they fall to the very base of the platform. Mm-hmm. And most Many, many oil platforms are 
very deep and you couldn't go recreationally diving to them. In this case, we could, it was a relatively shallow platform. It was only about 85 feet at the base. And we actually got to see these shell mounds and you'd think, oh, maybe a handful of shells, but no, these were like 20 feet tall mounds. And then when you're looking at them, the whole thing is moving because there's brittle stars and fish and there's baby fish and fish laying eggs and crabs. You could just sit there and watch this shell mound actually move with life. And I've, that was so crazy. I've never seen anything like that. That is unreal. Are there videos online of that or anything like, like with the ROV? When we, we went down there, we have some video on our YouTube channel of it. This wasn't that great. So you can tell that, you know, in California, you might have a day with 15 foot visibility, or you could have a day with 150 foot just kind of depends, but we do have video of it on our YouTube series, YouTube channel. Okay, cool. We'll have to put the link in the show notes to your YouTube channel. I think that's pretty cool. So obviously you mentioned, you know, now that things are evolving, there's more structures being put out. Do you guys focus on like as blue latitudes? Do you, does your work expand beyond the U S does it, are you guys international too, or? Yeah, we are. So we actually just finished a really a big project in Asia where they are looking to decommission some of their structures. Structures they actually have hundreds of platforms out there that are you know viable reefing candidates, and so they're looking to establish a rig streak program and help to better understand which structures would make for good candidates and which wouldn't, because not every platform is a good candidate to be reefed. Okay. There are several considerations from not only from the environmental perspective, but how does it impact a company financially or what are the impacts socially to other stakeholders that are using that using the ocean? So think of like a commercial fisherman that maybe wants to have the ability to trawl over an open area. And if there are a whole bunch of platforms there, that's going to interfere with any trawl fishing that goes on. Yeah. And so you've got to, there's a lot of stakeholder analysis that also has to be done on top of the ecological work, but that was a great project in Malaysia. And we've also had some work developing rig reef programs off of West Africa. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, with water accounting for, you know, the majority of our earth, <laughs> I'm sure there's lots to lots of ground to cover. What would you say is your, you know, maybe from a business perspective, COVID might be one of them, but what's the biggest challenge you guys have faced from, you know, growing or just perhaps any limiters that, that are sort of a challenge that you're trying to overcome? Has anything come to mind? I mean, I think breaking into the industry at the very beginning was challenging. We got lucky. People had looked at our work on our website and, you know, looked at our research because the time when we first got started, our work was based in research. It wasn't based on actual projects that we had done. And then a few companies started reaching out to us and giving us opportunities to, you know, do value assessments on their structures. And then from there, you know, you, you got to put yourself out there. You got to start cold calling these companies and pitching and learning how to do that. Yeah. Easy, but it's also a really good exercise for your business because, you know, in the beginning, how do we pitch what we're doing? How do we pitch that we're a women-owned marine environmental consulting firm and we're going to help you with your end-of-life planning? And they've never heard of you and you're two people from San Diego. And (laughs) I think that was a challenge for us, but it was also a really good exercise for us because it taught us how to do that. It also led to a lot of really interesting conversations where we learned about, these are some of the challenges facing the industry that we were not aware of. These are how we can add value and help you solve these issues. And it's also what has led to the diversification of our services. For example, 
about two years ago, we started realizing a lot of these companies when it comes to reefing had a lot of concern about the fishery stakeholders. And we hadn't encountered that before. We didn't study fisheries per se, but we did not have a very solid understanding of mapping and tracking, especially given Amber's background at Google Ocean. Mm. And so we started working with Global Fishing Watch, which is an organization that tracks essentially commercial fishing. But we got creative and used that technology to map how commercial fishermen are utilizing offshore platforms. So all of a sudden, now we can make a more informed decision because we could say either, yes, commercial fishermen will benefit from this, or you might have a negative impact. And I think, you know, having these conversations and, you know, learning on the fly, being agile has been really helpful for our our company in general. And it's actually what's helped us get through COVID because, you know, it wasn't just COVID that happened, you know, the price of oil went negative for the first time in history. And so that was a little bit of an intimidating process and, you know, no kidding. Yeah. Watching contracts just, you know, hit the pause button and you're like, is this going to come back? What's going to happen? And all of a sudden, you know, I never tracked the price of oil, but now I am tracking the price of oil and paying attention, but we were agile and we could think creatively about, you know, we understand the price has been this way. What if we shift into researching wind and what if we can apply our services in this area instead of this area? And what if we start working with governmental agencies instead of just oil and gas? And I think those things have been challenging for us as a company, but it's helped us be, you know, adaptive. And I think sometimes we're very fortunate. We're small. It's Amber and myself. We have a handful of employees as well. And if we were a massive company, I think it's harder to pivot and be flexible and agile in that way. So in many ways, that's been worked to our benefit. Yeah, no, being flexible and being able to adapt, especially anyone tied to oil and gas or energy for that matter, you know, the level of of volatility is, is high. And so being able to be quick and nimble and adapting to the environment is certainly something that will help, you know, the health of the business, which it sounds like it has for you. What does the future look like for Blue Latitudes? I mean, have you kind of projected what, what this might turn into in the next 10 years? I mean, with more and more, again, money being poured into offshore energy, I'm assuming there's lots of opportunity, but have you casted any vision as to what it'll look like? Yeah, definitely. So we've, in addition to not, you know, not only thinking about other offshore industries, such as wind and aquaculture and these other, you know, industries that are really developing and getting off the ground, we've also been working with the oil and gas industry to think beyond reefing just fixed platforms, but also looking into deeper waters. So looking and thinking about installations on the seafloor up to 7,000, 8,000 feet, and also decommissioning floating facilities like spars and other things like that that are floating but could potentially have value as a repurposed artificial reef. And so that's been really interesting for us because the deep sea is so different from what you will find on a, you know, the traditional idea of a reef ecosystem where there's lots of sunlight and colorful corals and fish swimming around in the deep sea. It's cold, dark, no light. There's extremely high pressure and the marine ecosystems down at that depth are really different, but they're actually incredibly important, fragile, and in many cases, very diverse and intrinsically linked to what's going on at the surface. So we have to protect those deep water ecosystems in the same way we're protecting our colorful coral reefs near the surface. And so this has Mm -hmm. kind of been an exciting new 
new chapter for us to learn more about the value of deep water ecosystems and how decommissioning is impacting those ecosystems. No kidding. Are you limited on technology to be able to access information about deep sea or is it just a matter of capacity and and hours put into the work? Well, so what we usually do is we work with the industry to look at their ROV footage. So whether it's maintenance footage from, you know, just going down and checking the integrity of these structures down at depth to actually doing marine life surveys in deep water environments, all of that information is really valuable. And we can also gain a lot from literature that's been published about these ecosystems and kind of apply the existing knowledge to what's going on out there. But the truth is, is that the deep sea is not as well studied as what you find in shallow water environments, because it's just not as easy to access a lot more money, a lot more resources. And, you know, you don't have the, the big, beautiful fish species to kind of be more charismatic to help you get the funding. It's definitely a harder environment to do research in. And that being said, there's a lot, there are some major players who are doing that research, but it's limited. So that's one of the constraints that we're working in. Interesting. That's wild. So what's the deepest structure that you have been a part of or have worked on? Do you have any, any of them that come to mind? The deepest work we've done was on some infrastructure that was, I think it was the line ran from like 3000 down to 7,000 feet. And that was so cool. I mean, that was also one of our first deep water projects. And I don't think what we're, we weren't expecting what we found. I would think we were not expecting the number and the amount and the diversity of marine life that we observed. And it's really cool as a scientist, it's so expensive to go explore those areas, to get an ROV and get a ship out there. It's really something that research scientists have to have special grants for. And even then it falls through and you really don't get to explore that much. So we felt really privileged and excited to be able to make these observations, see these bizarre fish species and see how they are actually utilizing these sites because, you know, hard substrate is comparatively rare in the ocean, especially in the deep ocean. It's just usually a sandy, silty environment. So that was a really cool experience for us. Yeah. And, and where was that? This was in the Gulf of Mexico. Gulf of Mexico. Okay. Interesting. That's wild. Well, I do have a ton more questions, but I certainly want to respect your time. And I like to typically close out with questions more related to the individual. And so Emily, we can start with you. So, you know, switching gears, not thinking about work, but do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to the success of your business or just personal life? I mean, is there anything kind of that helps you disconnect, recharge? And because I'm assuming as you know, the work you do is probably very, it requires a lot of hours. You're probably up late doing research, but what do you do to, for fun to dis- disengage? Well, for me, I'm a big runner. And I love to run. So I wake up early in the morning. I've got a big dog and he also loves to run. He loves to run more than most animals do. (laughs) Okay. What kind of dog? He's a flat-coated retriever. It's kind of like a brown golden retriever. And he's my buddy. And it's just, I really enjoy running in the morning. That's kind of like my time for myself. It's important for me to kick the day off, right? And then in the evenings, just spending with my husband and with family, that's just a really nice way to unwind. But certainly... For me to kick off my day, it's that run in the morning is like what gets me going. Awesome. I can identify. I find if I win the morning, I win the day. And so if I, if I get my workout in and, you know, the first couple hours are, you know, without disruption and I can get a sweat on and, and kind of just get my body ready, the rest of the day feels accomplished no matter what comes at me. So I can certainly appreciate that. Amber, what about you? 
Well, shoot, I don't want to say the same thing, but I we're all maybe we all have the same thing because I am the same way. Emily and I used to run together all the time. We both have dogs and Ah. that's what I do in the morning. So, okay. Get up early, make it happen. Yes. No, I love it. So when you say early, is this like a three 30 thing or is this like a seven o'clock thing? (laughs) That's like sadistic. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like five 30, 6 AM. Okay. So the normal times people run in the morning. Yeah. 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 No, that's awesome. Well, that's great. I certainly appreciate this has been such a very interesting conversation. One that I had no knowledge of and something that I hope to continue to learn about. And is there anything you'd like to relay or, or any plugs you'd like to mention with regards to the nonprofit or, you know, now's your opportunity to kind of spread the good word, if you will. Yeah. Well, you know what? I would say that at least for our nonprofits, one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now is the ability to have multiple decommissioning options in California. And so we have a petition that our biggest funder right now is Patagonia. And so we partnered with them to have a petition for the availability of a risk to reef option in California. And that's linked on our website. So people think, hey, you know, this is a program that we would like to see implemented or at least available in every ocean, you can go on and sign that petition and show your support. Yes. Well, all the listeners, you've heard it. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Amber, Emily, you're going to send me the link and we're going to petition to help them out. Okay. So you have my word. We'll try and do that for you guys. Well, I certainly appreciate it. And before we log off, I do want to tell the audience about some of our upcoming OGGN events. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month, we have six events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A and ONG. This is going to be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. 
Amber, Emily, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. Hopefully the listeners did too. What's the best way for people to reach out to either yourselves if they have questions or your business, even just to get to know more about the Rigs to Reef program and Blue Latitudes? Yeah, you can check out our website, www.rigtoreefexploration.org, as well as our nonprofit's website, which is bluelatitudesfoundation.org. You can also email either Amber or myself at emily at bluelatitudes.org and amber at bluelatitudes.org. Awesome. Well, is that one of those links? Is that the one where folks can sign up to petition? Or for yes. The petition? Yes. Okay. You can access the petition through our nonprofit's website. Awesome. I'm going to do that as soon as we log off. <laughs> thank you. Well, we you really bet. enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And if you're ever in Houston, please let us know. I'm sure Stephen and I would embrace having a drink or a coffee or something with you guys. But if not, it's been a pleasure and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.